Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Lots of news today about Israel. Lots of news about the United Nations. Some of the news had to do with Israelis demonstrating at the residence of Prime Minister Netanyahu, critical of his government's not facilitating or otherwise returning the October 7 hostages to their families. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu also spoke about plans for post-Hamas war existence with Palestinians. And uh, a lead news story uh, some of you heard just a few minutes ago, the United Nations says women and children are suffering the most in Gaza. Last weekend, we spoke with uh, Israel's ambassador to Canada, Ambassador Ido Moed, and the beginning of the interview had to do with Prime Minister Trudeau's support, quote-unquote, for Israel in the case brought by South Africa before the International Court of Justice, which is, of course, part of the UN. And uh, South Africa accuses Israel of genocide against Palestinians, many of the G7 allies of Israel have absolutely refused to accept the premise put forward by um, South Africa. I wish I hadn't used the word premise because that's what Trudeau used. And uh, the ambassador thanked Mr. Trudeau for saying, well, you know, we don't necessarily agree with the premise of South Africa, which was a watered-down response. He should have been more direct in his support for Israel. That's what the ambassador suggested to us. Here we are a week later. And in the interim, Mr. Trudeau has said publicly that Canada will support the eventual decision of the International Court of Justice. There are very many moving parts to this situation. Keep in mind, it all began October the 7th when Hamas terrorists attacked Israel and brutally killed civilians, raped women. You may want to turn your radio off for five seconds here and then shot them in the genitals and murdered babies and um, kidnapped many hostages. Many are still being held by, by Hamas. And for, for those people, and I, I know many people's hearts are in the right place, but if you're calling for a ceasefire, you have to understand and remember, theoretically, there was a ceasefire in place. On October the 7th, when Hamas terrorists attacked Israel. Remember, Hamas is a designated terrorist organization by the Canadian government. We're rejoined by uh, Israel's ambassador to Canada, Ambassador Ido Moed. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Roy. So we spoke about this last weekend, and I'm just curious what Israel's message now is to Prime Minister Trudeau concerning Canada's stance on the South African genocide charge against Israel at the International Court of Justice with Mr. Trudeau and his foreign affairs minister saying, we will accept the judgment of the International Court of Justice because that opens up many, many possibilities. So, as I understand, the, uh, the message was later corrected, but I think that what is extremely important at this point in time is that we have very uh, clear messages because there, this is not just a, a battle for, for democracy 
battling against Hamas in the Middle East, uh, the brutal terrorism and so on. It's it, because it's also inflicted upon uh, Palestinians, by the way, as much as on Israelis. But it's because we want to protect international law and order and what South Africa has done in that sense. And this is why it's so important also for Canada. What South Africa has done is turn international law actually upside down. Um, the same message came out also from very prominent Canadians like uh, a retired uh, Supreme Court judge, uh, judge Rosia Bella and Professor Ian Kotler and others uh, stating that what South Africa has done is actually accuse the victim of the crimes that the perpetrator uh, inflicted upon it. And, and this is something that we have to stand against as an international community, not just Israel, in its fight against Hamas. That was the message. Ambassador, we talked about this last weekend as well. And uh, I, when I mentioned you were going to be on the program, I received some emails from listeners saying they're finding it terribly difficult to witness the destruction that is evident um, and has been brought against civilians in Gaza who are not Hamas fighters. And, and the person who sent me an email last week, and I mentioned this to you, said surely a world-class military like that of Israel could be more surgical in its attack on Hamas. And now that we have the United Nations saying it's women and children who are suffering the most in Gaza, how, how does your government, how do you respond to those charges? Um, what we're saying is that every victim, any victim, is too many. Any death of a woman, of a child, in Israel or Palestinian is too many, and we lament that. We, it's not a choice that we've made. We are forced to fight this war. We are fighting a war against a terrorist organization that has managed to embed itself with the most vulnerable in society deliberately because they want to drag Israel into a battle which will create for Israel the most horrendous humanitarian uh, um, dilemmas one can imagine. The war that we are waging right now, I mean, Israel militarily has the power to conquer the Gaza Strip very quickly, but we have to be very careful and do it very meticulously. So we are trying to inform the population of where we are striking, when we are striking. Before that, we inform the population where are the safe places for them to go. We position tanks to uh, protect the movement of the population from one part of the Gaza Strip to another because we know that Hamas is actually blocking them and shooting at them in order for them to stay in harm's way. So it is it is an extremely complicated uh, urban battle, but we have to fight it because if we don't win this war, Hamas will continue to try and kill as many Israelis and destroy the state of Israel. We know that. They said it. Yes, they have said it. And they also said in interviews after October the 7th that the Palestinian population was not their problem. The Palestinian, Palestinians are mainly refugees, and they are the problem of the United Nations. Um, Pal um, Hamas leaders said that in interviews they gave after October the 7th. They also said, as you just pointed out, they would continue their attacks on Israel. Now, I'm, I'm looking at messages that are coming forward from international leaders. Some are unequivocal, some like what we've been hearing from Mr. Trudeau and Madame Jolie. Well, they're unclear. Um, it changes from 
day to day, week to week. And I'm just wondering, I'd like your thoughts on this. An unclear message or one which appears to not support Israel, does that not just fuel the genocidal calls against Jews in Canada and globally in those demonstrations we've seen across this country and elsewhere? I agree. I think that it's very difficult to uh, tell the Jewish community here that they have the full eye and tension of the government while the uh, rise of anti-Semitism creates a very different picture. We see the data, we see the information, we talk to people. Uh, if students cannot go to the university because they are afraid, then there is a problem with, I think, what is called academic uh, freedom. If they cannot show pictures of uh, people who've been abducted and been held hostage in the Gaza Strip, 136 of them, uh, then there is a problem. And, and I think that these issues needs to, need to be addressed at all levels because this is part of the, the, the sense that I get from the Jewish community here, that they feel that their concerns and their worries should have enough space to be uh, done in public. And beyond that, of course, the issue of security. So the question is really... Uh, I mean, it, it, it is an internal issue in, in, in Canada, but I do have very often contact with the Jewish community, and I'm aware that they are more concerned about their security. So the question is, is there indeed a relation between that, as you pointed out in your question? And I think that maybe it's very likely that there is some kind of a relation, and that that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it does. And we're talking about, when we talk about the Jewish community in this country, we're talking about multi-generational families who have contributed so much to this country's success and are such an integral part of the fabric of Canada for them now to be terrified in their own country is just unacceptable. Mr. Ambassador, there was a protest at Mr. Netanyahu, your prime minister's personal residence today by Israelis dissatisfied with the government's lack of progress in searching or securing, rather, the release of remaining Hamas hostages. Um, I imagine that is a hugely emotional issue in Israel. Yes, it is. Is it, is it, is it, I don't, this is a difficult question, I'm sure, but why is it taking so long? I think it's a question that everybody's asking. Uh, we know that we've been able to uh, secure the safety of uh, almost half of the uh, hostages when we uh, applied enough military pressure on Hamas that they were willing to accept a swap deal. And so that's what, that's what we did. And this is actually what we are aiming for uh, again. Um, you know, you may have seen uh, re very recent images that came out of Hanunis uh, of the of the cells, underground cells, where um, children's picture uh, drawings were found of one of the girls that was recently rescued. We know that about uh, 20 hostages were held in that cell uh, with bars. Um, I know somewhere underneath the Hanunis, uh, we are getting on an almost weekly basis videos of hostages that uh, supposedly were killed by Israeli fire. We know that Hamas executes them. So they are playing this psychological war um, at, any, at any given moment very cynically. And so that, of course, is also 
are playing with the minds of uh, of many Israelis, and and everybody wants them to come back home. And there is there is a discussion, there is an internal discussion. What is the best way to do it? We don't know because we've never been we never faced such a horrendous dilemma. But uh, we know we have to uh, defeat Hamas, and we know we have to release the hostages, and this is what we are doing. Um, could you clarify for us, please, uh, Mr. Moed, what Mr. Netanyahu is saying about any post-war with Hamas position his government will undertake as an Israel living side by side with Palestinians? What's the vision? So, I, what we, what Prime Minister said is that the uh, state two-state solution. That actually, the question was not exactly about the two state solution involves his political future, uh, but then he mentioned this as uh, an indirect question about the future of the Israeli-Palestinian coexistence. And what he said is that at this moment, since the prevalent issue is security, Israel's security, we have to make sure that, first of all, there is one state that continues to exist, which is the state of Israel. And to that, we have to add the question, what is happening on the Palestinian side? I don't think that there is any eagerness there for a two-state solution. We know that, according to polls, more than 80% support the chance from the river to the sea, which is the annihilation of the state of Israel. So what we are emphasizing is that, first and foremost, in any future solution, we have to make sure that our security is 100% guaranteed from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, this has to be guaranteed, and this is what Prime Minister has said. Yeah. Uh, many of Israel's allies in the G7 have been very, very direct about their support for Israel and their dismissal of the South African case they're bringing before the International Court of Justice. Um, I also read, and please tell me if I'm correct about this, because there's a lot of talk about relations between Israel and other regional governments. I read that, if I understand this correctly, Saudi Arabia has not closed the door to a peace uh, arrangement with Israel even post-October the 7th. Is that correct? That's correct. The same as uh, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, uh, Jordan, Egypt, uh, UAE. These, These relationships are beyond... What is going on? Actually, they understand very well what we are fighting against. We are fighting against a terrorist organization that actually threatens the whole Middle East. They are supported by Iran, just like Hezbollah, and they are not only a destabilizing factor, but they create a culture of of murder and 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 terrorism of a magnitude that is that is a threat to all of us, not just Israel. So our cooperation uh, continues. However, there is of course criticism about. The number of casualties, there is a lot of concern for the fate of the Palestinians. Uh, so Jordan has been involved in uh, supporting them uh, on many ways. Uh, Egypt, of course, it borders Gaza Strip, so it's very much involved. And the others as well. But that doesn't mean that the relationship with Israel should be severed, to the contrary. In about 30 seconds, how would you describe the relationship between Israel and Canada today? Both our countries support the international rule-based system. Both countries uh, support each other in their fight for freedom and democracy. 
we may see things differently in the sense of how the international community, especially the United Nations and the International Court of Justice, should be an instrument in securing those values. Marshall, what Tim Hortons restaurant closed its dining area. There was fear of drug abuse and violence. Now the counter and the drive-thru will continue to operate. Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun wrote, quote, it was becoming an unofficial narcotics delivery center. And then Joe this morning wrote another piece, Woke Canada sets its sights on making Anne of Green Gables more diverse. Joe Warmington joins us. Joe, let's start with the uh, with, with, with Oshawa. Here's this iconic Canadian brand, Tim Hortons, and they wave the white flag. Walk us through it, please, for the people who don't know yet. Yeah, it's a, actually a very busy Tim Hortons right on Simcoe Street South. It's uh, right near the 401, and anybody who goes to Oshawa usually stops in the Tim's there, and lots of seniors in there, Roy, it's a lot of your listeners uh, go in there, and you know, you're right. I think that was a good way of describing it because of all the safe injection sites and all the different sort of uh, supply issues around the area. There's so many people that are strung out on these really hardcore drugs, fentanyl, crystal meth, and they call what they call trank, which is some sort of a concoction of all of it. And uh, they're in the sort of uh, ravine in behind there. And of course, with it being so cold, you know, they're in, they go into the Tim Hortons and, and shoot up in there and, and bother people. And so the staff aren't, aren't feeling safe and the customers aren't. So Tim Hortons just said, okay, fine. Uh, no more dining room. Uh, we've seen this in other places uh, as well, but uh, it's the first time I've seen it in Oshawa. So you can go into, in, in order to, to take out and stand out in the cold. But thanks to the drug dealers, the drug addicts, and all the issues that go with it, you know, a, a little piece of our Canadiana is being, you know, um, chiseled away. There's, of course, a lot of that, uh, almost the theme of what we're talking about today. It's interesting coming after what the Prime Minister said about being there for each other, all that, you know, that motherhood stuff he says over and over and over. But there's also a reality in the street, and it's unraveling. Canada's unraveling in the street, and that's what we witnessed. Uh, Jack Bull and the photographer and I, when we went out there this week, you know, Joe, it's um, it's so uh, impossible to accept for so many people. And the question then becomes, how did we get from where we are were to where we are today? What do you think? Well, it's complicated. I mean, look, at there's a lot of things that go with it. Um, you know, basically, we're in the throes of a kind of a strange recession. It's a weird one because people you know, are still trying to truck along. But the minute you get onto these drugs, this fentanyl, the stuff that originally came from China, a lot of it's being manufactured in Mexico now, uh, the police have just you know, thrown up their hands because you're one and you're done. You take that once and you're hooked on it. And they're slipping it into marijuana so that, you know, people uh, think that they're smoking legal marijuana, but, you know, it's got a little boost in it. And the minute you take that, your brain doesn't know what brand it is, and it goes to look for it. Before you know it, you're you're hooked on this stuff. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people high because of being a street reporter for so long. But this is so weird. I mean, you see, you see the footage of it in Vancouver and places like that where they, they're almost like an ostrich or a crane. You stand there, your head is bobbing up and down, and you're completely out of it. Your body doesn't really have any control anymore. And, you know... I, I got to tell you, that really hurt because I wrote about this young woman, Roy. Uh, there was 
several people there. We focused on a couple of women. One had real black eyes all over her face. Both her eyes had been punched by somebody. And there was another young lady there, and her father actually reached out to me because he, he recognized her, obviously, from the video and from the pictures. And, you know, he bought her the um, snowsuit that she was wearing. Uh, she's really sick, uh, you know, a major addict, and they, they didn't know where she was, so they were relieved to to see her there. Uh, but, you know, they've got to get her into a hospital. We have no drug rehab, you know, proper centers anywhere uh, that I know of. I mean, we've got people coming in uh, from all over the world that we can't house, and we've got people hooked on these drugs. And it's um, it's a crisis, and it's, a, it's not okay. Like, it's not okay. And I understand that we don't want to pick on prime minister or the premiers or the mayors and all that every time we open our mouths, but... You know, that is their job. And, uh, you know, we pointed out, it'll be glossed over. Thank you, Roy, for bringing it up today, because these are human beings. This is our brothers and sisters, sons and daughters out there. Yeah. You know, I I really, um, I didn't talk about this until I saw your, your, your column, Joe. But a few weeks ago, I was at a McDonald's in Hamilton, and I wanted to go to the washroom. And the door was locked. So I did what we all do. We wait for the person who's in there to come out so we can go in. And nobody came out. And nobody came out. And nobody came out. And I just stood there. And eventually somebody in the restaurant said to me, you have to go to the counter and have them buzz you into the washroom because there's been way too much drug activity in this area. And they go, the addicts go to these washrooms and fast food restaurants i.e. what's happening at Tim Hortons in, in Oshawa, and they and they use them. So now at that McDonald's, you can't go to the can unless they buzz you in. And there is a responsibility quotient that goes with being the manager of a city or the manager of a province or the manager of a nation. You can't just keep relaxing the rules when they're not working, when that relaxation of rules is really not working. And when you see the yellow tape, I saw your photograph, in the sun, when you see the yellow tape around the dining area at the Tim Hortons, Joe, it's really, really deeply disturbing. And as you say, there's the human factor, the people who've become addicted to these substances. They're, as you said, somebody's son, somebody's daughter. But the reality is, the reality is, Joe, that we're facing what's in front of us. And now what do we do? Well, I think the, the number one thing is to stop sort of uh, treating it like it's a minor thing and to say, yep. oh, you just yep. use all the drugs you want. We'll give you the supply. It's, we'll call it harm reduction and all this stuff. That's not working. And uh, a lot of these people are dying. And, of course, the, the elements help with that. But they're, yes. they're sick. They end up, uh, you know, really, really sick with this stuff. You don't really get out of this easily. And and the other thing is that I know there's people listening from from all across the country to your show today that are saying, well, this is actually happening in my town mm-hmm. as well. It's not just in Ontario, but all across the country. That's right. Um, and, and I received a lot of uh, emails about that, that people say, what about my town? I know uh, not that long ago I was in Barrie, Ontario, and they, they'd shut down the uh, McDonald's uh, dining area. It's a very similar story. And outside, there was all the same thing. People that are just getting high on this stuff and jonesing for it. And of course, they'll do anything they can to get their hands on it. And yet, every time anybody does any kind of serious crime, with the exception of Tamara Leach, they go to uh, 
you know, and the the oh the guys that uh, out of coots there that kind of thing they really throw the book at political prisoners but the ones that that are you know breaking into houses or holding people up things like that they're they're out of bail in ten seconds mm-hmm. so we're kicking the can down the road and you know it's um I, I think it's a human story I mean you know uh, I really really have been thinking a lot about you know the getting that response from the father I've reached out to him. Uh, he's trying to come up with a strategy. I don't, you know, he doesn't really know what to do. And uh, but you never give up hope. And that's the thing. Like I had uh, somebody who was close to my family that had an addiction like that, and eventually this person did was able to get you know get the better of it and and move on and be get married and have a family and all that. So it's possible. And people have to keep the, the hope. Yeah, they do. You and I talked. Um, day before yesterday or yesterday, and you told me about the story that you were going to write that I saw this morning in the sun. And I still had to convince myself that this is true. Here's the headline, Joe Warmington's story, Toronto Sun. Woke Canada sets sights on making Anne of Green Gables more diverse. This is not a new story. This is not something that is brand new to this country. Anne of Green Gables brings... Hundreds of thousands of foreign visitors to Prince Edward Island annually. Joe, tell the story, please. Yeah, I, yeah, I was actually on my way to Oshawa when I heard it on AM640 with uh, Alex Pearson had Tom Korsky from Blacklocks Reporter. He does, and his team do a lot of great work like this. And when I got uh, you know, through with the Oshawa story, I looked it up and I found the press release. Sure enough, there was a press release from Parks Canada, and there's a whole report about it. It's a big, long report. In essence... What they're saying, Roy, is that they need to upgrade this thing into modern sensibilities and that, you know, Anne is, is not diverse enough, uh, perhaps too white. They want to bring in people from, you know, experiences, the First Nations, all kinds of different ethnic groups, and sort of include them in the experience down there in Cavendish. And it's like no one's asked for that. And I knew that right away because I have been there. And when I have been there, I've seen people from around the world from Japan and Asia and Africa and everywhere. They love this story. They like the red-headed, green-eyed orphan girl from Canada, and they're okay with that. In her own way, she was a unique, diverse person for the age. That was the whole point of her story. Told by the great Lucy Maud Montgomery, who wrote 20 novels, 500 short stories, and must be rolling in her grave. Now, they've tried this before because they did a TV show where they made a sassy, ruder Anna Green Gables. Nobody wants them to change anything about Anna Green Gables. She's perfect. Uh, Canada is a great country, and they've got to stop changing everything. They've taken away our first prime minister. They've taken away our great educators like McGill and Ryerson. Uh, They've also removed the statue of Queen Victoria. And now they're going for Anna Green Gables. And, you know, like, if we don't stand up and say, enough is enough, like, stop it. And, you know, again, I don't see any politicians speaking out. I only see Roy no. Green, and I'm glad that Tom Korski uh, brought it to our attention. Uh, and, and I'm glad to follow up with it. And, you know, I don't know if there's anything we can do to reverse this, but, you know, it oh, is, yeah. it oh, is yeah. really look, look, Anything can be reversed. We're going to find, we're going to talk about that in the next hour with uh, Professor Sylvain Charlebois. But, uh, you know, c- congratulations to Tom and to um, Blacklock's reporter, and of course, Alex Pearson, AM640. But you know, Joe, I tweeted out, after I read your story, might as well change the name of Prince Edward Island. While this woke crew is at it, surely 
Name shame is just waiting to be identified. Prince Edward Island. Island. Can't they're leave that, Joe. I mean, they, they took Dundas Square. They, they're going to take, you know, Henry Dundas. Apparently, I never even knew there was a Henry Dundas until they decided that 250 years ago he didn't do something fast enough. And, and now they're going to call it Sankofa Square. So call, what are they going to call Prince Edward Island? I mean, it, that sounds pretty colonial the way it is. I mean, these people are insane. And, you know, again, if we don't talk about it and run the risk of being called names, et cetera, uh, then they're just, you know, inch, take a mile thing, Roy. So let me ask you this. Was there any... really ridiculous. Is there any evidence that First Nations asked for Anne of Green Gables to change, to become a diverse? No. No, they don't don't want to change it. You know, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with acknowledging... You know, the if you want to, in a, in a very subtle way, if that is important to the First Nations there. And I think that's all they're really asking for. But, of course, everybody just is going crazy. They want to, you know, make a, a First Nations experience there, along with other things. And over the next 15 years, you're going to see, you know, an enhancement of that and less of Anna Green Gables. Look at Lucy Montgomery lived down the lane there through that forest, that haunted forest. And her vision of it is not something that they consulted with their family. You you won't see them mentioned. She has a granddaughter in Toronto. And, they, you know, I don't see her signing off on it. Now, I haven't been able to get a hold of her to see what she thinks. But, I mean, she's prob- probably the only person that might be able to stand up to this. But, you know, even like in my, I have a new column up there now, if you want to read it, about the Rideau Canal and how, you know, it's minus 17 there uh, going to be tonight. It was minus 18 this morning. And they still don't have the Rideau Canal open because they're talking about climate change, even though it's frozen as a rock. And, you know, like, there's no way anyone's going to fall through there. But everything about Canadiana is being either uh, canceled, replaced, or reimagined, Roy. And, you know, if it wasn't for your voice there with laryngitis (laughs) out there fighting the good fight, we try to do it at the Toronto Sun, and there's other people that do it. But the public, you have to do it. You've got to tell... You know, your politicians that you don't want to see Canada cancelled any further. Well, I would expect to hear from the Prince Edward Island government. Uh, they should be heard from. But there's there's so much on the table now, Joe. There is so much on the table. Thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, my friend. All the best. I'll be listening in on the advice about how to get rid of that laryngitis. Oh, yeah. All yeah, the yeah, best, right? You could be next. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope not, but I hope anyway, not too. you take care of yourself. Thanks, Joe. So, a global news story earlier in the week. Have a cough that just won't quit. Here's what it may be. So, what causes coughs, laryngitis, and other uh, manifestations to trail long after a viral infection has departed? Dr. Neil Rao is back with us, infectious diseases specialist at Halton Region and assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Rao, you know me. You know, I don't usually sound like this. What the hell is going on? Well, hello in your hoarseness. <laughs> well, what's, what's happening to what, what, what's yes. going on with people? Well, I think people are very conscious about their symptoms, first of all. This right. is a post-COVID manifestation. People are very conscious of their symptoms. They're conscious about going to work if they're ill. They are thinking about not infecting others. So some of that 
cough etiquette, respiratory etiquette has prevailed following COVID. So I think people are very cognizant of their symptoms. The other thing is I think we've had this before, but people didn't pay as much attention to it. And we also have a combination of some of the respiratory viruses that kind of went on hold through COVID now making their ascendancy again. That was a bigger problem last year than it is this year. Last year, we saw this thing called immunity debt, where RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus, was affecting kids disproportionately after the COVID waves had come and gone and when kids were starting to interact again. So I think it's multiple factors, but I think part of it is simply consciousness. And one thing I do want to say is that even though we're hearing a lot about this, when you look at it from the virus indicators level, like the graphs of what the rates are, things are actually getting better. The flu wave of this year is dropping. In general, respiratory illnesses presenting to family physicians' offices based on sentinel surveillance sites, it's also improving. So what you're seeing is kind of a lingering on of after the infection, coughs in people. Okay. You, I guess. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I didn't have COVID. I, I had a little sniffles had the the cold thing going for not not even very severely, and then my voice said bye bye, and that usually happens when I get a cold. When the cold's over, the voice disappears, but it came back. Here's my. I'm giving you an autobiographical description here. It came back. The voice came back, and then it disappeared again. I know it's happening to people across the country. Who are very concerned about how do I know that the virus is gone? What should I do about the manifestations that I'm experiencing now? Do I need to go to my doctor, or should I just write it out? I think for most people, the answer is write it out. But there are danger symptoms we always watch for. If someone is having trouble breathing, uh, trouble when they're walking, getting more short of breath, or if the symptoms are actually starting to get worse and worse and not progressively better, if you look week to week, that's when there is a signal that you should at least see your family doctor as a first step. When I say not getting better, I mean, I think you should give this a couple of weeks, generally speaking. Viral infections don't deserve antibiotics, and unfortunately, we don't have any antivirus medications for most viral infections, except for influenza. But to give people treatments for influenza, you have to have a test available to identify who has the flu versus other respiratory viruses that can look very much like influenza. So it's hard to tell the sniffles apart, whether it's due to COVID, influenza, a whole smorgasbord of other viruses. So in general, I think a wait and watch approach is reasonable. But if there's a, an acceleration or worsening of symptoms after a period of improvement, and that worsening is getting worse and worse. It's not just a little bit worse. That's when you go to the family doctor, at least as a first step. I received an email from a listener after I mentioned earlier that you were going to be on the program and that we were going to be talking about this. And the listener wrote, my cough gets worse at night than it is during the day. Am I imagining things? Should I be oh, double concerned? That's exactly that is classic because when you lie down, you get more post nasal drip. So if your sinuses are affected and congested, it drip drip drips into the back of the throat. You're not clearing your throat, except transiently when you're waking up and coughing and and horking up, if you will. So that's that's actually quite classic personal experience as well. I can say. <laughs> you, wait a minute. Hold on. You, you, do you hork? 
No, I'll try to say you know, you're, you're coughing up that mucus. I know exactly what's being described yeah. here, and and this this is a bugbear season. This is going to go on until March. We're going to see a lot of this. Yeah, I never heard a doctor and, say and it's exactly before. that. It's it is actually worse at night. You think because you're not being active, the things you get better, but it's that position you assume when you sleep, usually sleeping on your back, that makes this worse. So yeah. sometimes sleeping on our side can help a bit, but I don't have a, a quick and easy solution for that. Okay, now we know each other pretty well, so. I try to pull your leg occasionally <laughs> with a question. Um, so when I heard you say we hork it up, I've never heard the doctor use the word hork before. <laughs> I was trying to use common parlance. I think I know, you did a good job. <laughs> Not an actual job. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, can I in the in the a minute or so we have left? Can we get a COVID update from you? So COVID is here to stay. There are always going to be new variants around the corner. But what's really reassuring is that even with each new variant that comes in, though we do see a slight increase in mild disease in the community and ebbs and flows, it doesn't translate into a big surge on the healthcare system. This is because people have immunity from either one of the prior COVID strains that was out there since 2020, or because they've been vaccinated or both. So we're in a much better situation than we were when we first talked about this topic three years ago. Okay. And unless it's situation with a cough or whatever I have is, is getting worse, just ride it out, monitor it, and seek help if you think you need it. As long as week to week, you think it's better. Let me put yeah, it that way. Yeah. It's not going to be better day by day, but if you fall in like the stock market, you're going to be unhappy. <laughs> the stock market makes me work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we better stop this. We've, 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 got, we've descended we've descended into inanity in conversations in the past. I don't think we should well, do it again. Good, good luck with your recovery. We'll see. We'll listen next week. And see All right. Thank so. you so much, Dr. Rapp. Thank you. Okay. Here's a story that is so tragic, and it could have been most likely prevented. Calgary police are investigating the uh, domestic homicide of a mother and wife and her husband's body was found nearby. This was in an elementary school earlier this week in the city. Um, police had been to the family residence several times and had repeatedly charged the husband who was then released by the courts on a no-contact order, which obviously the husband ignored. Criminal law professor Doug King said, quote, a restraint order, a no-contact order, was placed on him. He violated it twice. And each time he violated it, he would have had to have been before a judge again to look at his release. I question what was the logic behind releasing him out after his second violation. We're joined by Professor Doug King, Justice Studies Professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Professor King, thank you for joining us. Thank you. A terrible situation which resulted in two deaths and the justice system and the bail system. Am I, am I fair in saying that the systems, justice and its offshoot, the bail system, must accept at least some significant responsibility? You know, I, I think I think those are important questions to ask. I think um, there are several questions I have still in my mind. But I think first and foremost, I think we have to ask ourselves, um, why would someone who has been charged with a sexual assault 
had been charged with uh, stalking, and it happened earlier in the summer, and then had violated uh, uh, no confident, no contact orders twice. Um, and every time would have gone up for a, a judge to have the uh, bail release uh, conditions reviewed. Uh, why did the why why did the bail uh, why did the judge decide it was appropriate to, to release this individual? Um, the tragedy is also that we're never going to get an answer to that because uh, judges don't talk to uh, the public and uh, to justify their their opinions and position. So we're going to be left answering questions, asking questions we'll never get an answer to. Hugely frustrating for the police as well. Mm -hmm. Terribly yeah. frustrating. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I can uh, I can well appreciate the shock that the first responders had when they arrived mm -hmm. at the scene. And then you start then cascading uh, down uh, to the reality that the Calgary, the, the court and the Calgary Police Service had actually issued an arrest warrant for the individual uh, later that morning. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the murder had already happened. And so, you know, there's obviously bureaucratic, you know, uh, blocks in terms of communication. Um, so, um, you know, another, another half day, uh, perhaps this might not have happened. Um, one of the questions I do have is that if an arrest warrant was being considered, uh, was the ultimate, did the offender's um, lawyer know about that and notify the uh, offender, uh, say, the evening before? And was that the trigger um, that could have been the catalyst to all of this? That's why the, the uh, Calgary Police Service, rightly so, has asked the province to do an investigation. Um, we need to know more, and um, the Calgary Police Service knows that they need a little bit of hands hands off on this investigation and let others do it. Yeah. Uh, an inescapable question is, how frequently might this be happening across Canada, where a situation where an individual is considered a threat to his spouse or significant other, and domestic violence has been addressed by the police and charges have been filed and the court allows bail to take place, as happened in Calgary. Is there any way that we can even guesstimate how frequently this may be going on in this country? The tragedy is no. Um, uh, I have lots of reasons why it's a difficult assessment to make, is that uh, as we are talking right now, there are uh, likely individuals who are being victimized by domestic violence in their homes by their partners in Calgary and in every city and community that your listeners are, are living in right now. The, the pervasiveness of domestic violence is, uh, is shocking. And it has actually been on the increase in terms of being reported to the police over the last 10 years. And it just skyrocketed during the pandemic. Now, most non-contact orders, restraining orders, um, generally work. The, the individual who receives them is smart enough to realize that if they violate it, they get into a lot more trouble than they currently are facing. But the reality is, is there are people like this offender um, yesterday or this earlier this week who are not um, in any way um, um, restricted by it. In fact, they could be empowered by it, could anger them even more. 
So remember that a lot of domestic violence is all, is a act of control. I want power and control over the person that I'm um, uh, uh, using violence against. And so if they try and take a little bit of the power back, that enrages some of them. And unfortunately, we end up getting situations like we saw earlier this week. Professor King, what do you think of the bail reform that's underway? Yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, so the uh, federal government of Canada implemented bail reform uh, earlier this uh, this year, early January. The uh, latest reforms came in, and you know, quite frankly, I don't think they go far enough. The what the reforms amounted to, or if an if a person was who was before the court had committed a criminal offense within the last five years. Um, from a list of offenses, and they range from sexual assaults to, um, um, you know, uh, use of weapons and things like that. If they were before the court again, having used a weapon, um, there would be uh, greater restrictions on them being able to get bail. Um, that's a small number of people who are in the criminal justice system. We could have done it a different way, and, the, and I was an advocate for this. There's something called, there's Section uh, 469 offenses in the Criminal Code of Canada, and they are a list of offenses that are what we call reverse onus offenses, where it's up to the accused to argue why they should get bail, as opposed to the current model where uh, the Crown has to make that argument. We could easily add more offenses to that, uh, Section 469. It would be cleaner, it would be easier. But the federal government didn't go that route, and the Canadian associations, the chiefs of police, didn't uh, take up that possibility. So, uh, again, an incremental change in bail reform that came in uh, two weeks ago um, won't have much effect at all on, on situations like this. So, it's not improbable that what happened earlier this week in Calgary may happen elsewhere in this country. Very soon there was a terrible situation in Sault Ste. Marie, very recently. Yeah. So the, the likelihood of this being a recurring situation, quite high, yes? I think it's more than a likelihood. I think it's almost a certainty. Um, uh, the, the thing that made the Calgary situation so kind of startling and has captured a lot of attention, rightly so, is the fact that it was done in public view in front of a school, in, in front of an elementary school. You ha we have to understand that uh, that people are being killed in, in domestic interpersonal violence in their homes on a regular basis across Canada. Um, and if they're not being uh, murdered, they're being assaulted, and uh, they're uh, oftentimes uh, petrified to come forward. Um, so, um, you know, ultimately uh, resolving domestic violence issues are, is not a criminal justice issue. It's a broader social issue. And I just, if I could leave one thing, is um, I would ask each of your uh, listeners to ask yourself, do you think anybody you know might be a victim of domestic violence? And if you do, you should be empowered to do something about that. Um, don't just ignore it because you could be putting their life at risk. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.